Hey there, and welcome to Now a Mem. This is a new podcast series to discuss what it's like to be a man in the 21st century, and how feminist issues are relevant to the lives of men and boys. It's been set up by researchers in the Centre for Research into Violence and Abuse at Durham University in the UK. My name is Dr Stephen Burrell, and I'm a Leverhulme Early Career Fellow. The podcast is mainly hosted by myself and Sandy Ruxton, who's an Honorary Research Fellow. Hi, Sandy. Hi, Stephen. So each episode is going to be based around a conversation with an expert. That could be a practitioner, an activist, an academic, someone who's got an in-depth knowledge of the issues we're going to be looking at. And we'll be asking them about their work and the research they're doing, as well as exploring their own personal experiences of doing work related to masculinity and gender equality and how they got involved in the area. Enjoy the episode. Okay, hello everyone. Um, in today's episode, we're talking to Mike, Dr. Mike Ward. He's a senior lecturer in social sciences at Swansea University, and his work focuses on the performance of working class masculinities within and beyond educational institutions. And he draws on his experiences in particular of young men in the South Wales Valleys. Yeah, and, and so Mike's written an award-winning book based on some of his research uh, called From Labouring to Learning, Working Class Masculinities, Education and Deindustrialization," uh, And that was published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2015. Uh, he's also the editor of the journal uh, Boyhood Studies. And in 2020, he started the Corona Diaries project to understand the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic on people's everyday lives in the UK uh, through the use of written and visual documents and testimonies and accounts. So welcome to Now and Men, Mike. I mean, obviously, you know, we've all been living through this horrendous COVID time. And you've said that you as a sociologist wanted to do something useful during this period. So you started the Corona, Corona Diaries project. So perhaps we could start off by asking you where the idea for that came from, how it's developed, and the impact, the impact of the process, both for you and, and participants. Hey, uh, thanks for inviting me on the podcast. It's really interesting to uh, be involved in something like this. So, yeah, the Corona Diaries project was something which, uh, first and foremost, was my way of... Um, processing this this pandemic i think it's hard if we all think back now to march 2020 when it was all sort of starting um how unusual it was you know and how uh, no one really kind of knew what was going to happen and were we all going to die <laughs> or was it just going to morph into something else um and all my career as you've excellently introduced me there thank you very much has been in gender studies men and masculinities um, and, and I've used qualitative research in various guises, but, I, you know, I've never done anything diary-based or anything that seemed so, so uh, you know, recent and up-to-date. So it was one of them occasions where I was thinking, well, you know, what's going to happen to us? The society's being made and remade quickly. Uh, there's a sociologist called Bloomer who once talked about reaching experiments how he would send his students out, we're talking 1960s America, to go out and uh, treat your parents' house like a hotel or to shut the door in people's faces rather than holding it open. What happens when people sort of breach etiquette? And um, this COVID-19 pandemic seemed to be a huge breaching experiment, everything being thrown up in the air. Uh, so leading up to that first lockdown when we were all, you know, kind of struggling with what was going to happen did we believe what was it was it going to be as bad as the people made out was you know this this sort of creeping wave that was coming from china and then across europe and italy and we just seemed to be standing still waiting for it to hit us 
Um, and I thought something, you know, I'd done a bit of reading and I and I read the Neil Ferguson paper around about the 16th, 17th of March. And I thought, this is actually pretty serious, you know, and no one, no one seemed to be really in the news anyway, as I, at the time I felt that it was the truth was coming out, how bad it was going to be if we didn't lock down straight away. So I, I was kind of thinking, you know, this is a bit like a war here. And then I got thinking, well, actually, the Second World War was something which was recorded by everyday people in diaries. I thought, well, that would be quite a good thing to do. And um, put a proposal together for my ethics committee and I kind of got very excited and got it got it in. I think I submitted it at like four or five o'clock in the morning because I'd stayed up all night writing this proposal because I was really, you know. And um, that would have been... Oh, I don't know. That's the, the UK national lockdown started on the Monday, and that was the Friday. So, by the end of that first week of lockdown, I had this project was launched, and within I don't know a couple of weeks, I had over a hundred participants. Uh, sorry, hundred people interested. Then, as the weeks went on, and the BBC picked it up, and um, I got interviewed, and you, know, you couldn't move for me for about a week on BBC Wales, and, that, and uh, I peaked. <laughs> I peaked in mid-April. Literally, the phone didn't stop ringing, and after that, it's been a quiet withdrawal from from it. But yeah, by by mid-April, I had over um, 180 people had signed up from 14 different countries across the world, all using different versions of documenting the pandemic, from keeping handwritten diaries, word process diaries, notebooks, songs. Some people wrote songs about the pandemic, poems. I had one mother and daughter who were cross stitching. Uh, they made cross stitches, the artwork. Um, somebody also kind of kept um, dream, a dream diary. I don't know about anyone listening to this, but I had some really odd dreams at the beginning of the pandemic. You know, my brain was doing some odd processing. And she kept this, this participant kept a dream log during that first sort of three or four months. Um, and the project ballooned out of all uh, control. I mean, I'm a single researcher. I didn't have any research funding. Um, and at the moment, it stands at uh, over 700 submissions uh, over the 18 months of the pandemic from 183 participants. Yeah, that sounds really that sounds really interesting. It'd be great to be able to see some of that material. But um, just in, t- in terms of the podcast, it might be interesting to ask you whether there's anything that that um, surprised you in relation to gender to masculinities coming out of this work. I think what the biggest surprise, Sandy, was how few men signed up for it or how many participants who identify as male signed up to it. So obviously we've got famous diarists like Samuel Pepys, you know, well-kept diaries. We've got, uh, you know, other other prominent figures. I think uh, uh, our old Richard Burton from South Wales, um, which Swansea University hold his diaries and who have been involved in creating this, this archive, um, you know, well-known diarists um so i just assumed more men would sign up but i would say the gender split really is about 75 percent female or those who identify as female to about 25 percent or 25 percent who identify as male um we haven't got any uh, non-binary or trans uh, people um so it's it's really surprised me because with the vast amounts of ways of recording and documenting the crisis i thought more men might be involved in sending in jokes or memes you know, we've all lived through a, a very sort of media-focused pandemic in the sense of we've had lots of interaction with people online and things. So I, I just assumed that there'd be maybe screenshots of tweets or Instagram posts or things, but very few really from mm. men. And um, Do you have an explanation for that? Well, I've got a theory. Well, a, th- a theory of it is that 
obviously traditionally men are less likely to speak about their feelings okay um, my own work has, has looked at this and there is a you know a very stereotypical idea that men find it hard to process their emotions so they're less likely to speak about it they're less likely to seek therapy um, and as we know unfortunately men are more likely to to, com- to commit suicide and have different types of uh, mental health issues to women but there are you know there's a load of evidence out there that says that one of the issues that men deal with is trying to process things in a way that maybe that we're not used to as men of doing, or certain types of men. My other theory is that um, women um, are kind of used to, to, to writing about themselves uh, in a way that men aren't. So what you notice from the accounts is that the men are very functioning about what they do write about. I went to the shop, I brought bread, then I watched a film, then I did some gardening, um, and then I drank some alcohol and went to bed. Whereas the women who do write, write about their accounts, but also how they feel about things more and how they process it. Mm. So in the writing, there are differences in the way people have recorded it. Obviously, we could talk about um, COVID for a long time, but we also want to talk about your um, your main research and writing. But before we move on to that, I just wanted to throw in an additional question which relates to it, really, which is about... Um, the Welsh First Minister, Mark Drakeford. Now, you know, um, he seems to have responded to the COVID pandemic in quite a different way to many other male leaders. So the Trumps, the Bolsonaros, Bolsonaros and so on. Um, he, he appears to express quite a different kind of masculinity. Do you, do you think that's, that's so? Do you think that's fair comment? I think Mark Drake has done a wonderful job in a, in a very difficult time. In terms of the way he's dealt with it, he obviously draws on a, a different kind of background to many of his contemporaries. So, of course, Mark Drakeford was a professor of social policy at Cardiff University, and he's actually written a paper about men and masculinities in Wales right back in 1999 with Jonathan Schofield. Um, so he himself kind of would be aware of this this idea of uh, men maybe not just being all in one box and having different perspectives. So I'm not sure we can put him in the same box as Jacinda Ardern from New Zealand in terms of her approach, you know, taking a very much, we're in this together, uh, we're going to shut our borders, we're, we're going to look out for each other, we're going to do it in New Zealand, mateship, that sort of idea around collective, you know. But Mark Drake certainly adopted some of that. Um, it's very difficult to close a border which is 200 miles long, you know, right across between England and Wales. But he certainly used that rhetoric of, you know, we're in this for Wales, we're going to keep Wales safe, we're going to do it for each other. Um, there was no, I mean, he, he was exceptional in terms of he slept in a in a kind of outbuilding of his house for um, for some large parts of the first pandemic to keep his kind of wife safe. There is no um, residential house for the First Minister or Welsh Prime Minister, however you want to term it, in Wales. Um, and, and I think some of the reaction to him that there was a protest outside his house was, uh, I think that was really uncalled for. Um, obviously, uh, you know, there are issues, you know, not everything was dealt with properly. I think the mask issue was a bit late. Um, the idea around, you know, some people being able to travel for different reasons, uh, it's, it's difficult. But I, th- I think what he showed is a different type of leadership and a bit more relatable, I think, to somebody than someone like, certainly more someone like Trump and, and Boris. But of course, you know, he, he's part of a, a four-nation approach, which hasn't always linked together either. So, no. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. Thank you. And um, yeah, to move on uh, from the pandemic, uh, Mike, we, we wanted to um, ask you a bit more, if that's OK as well, about your own biography, um, because you've talked previously about how that how that does relate, you know, quite closely to, you, to your own work. Um, so could you perhaps just uh, say a little bit more about, you know, where were you brought up? What was the community like at that time? And, and has that shaped your work um, in any way? Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a really interesting time to talk about this because it's almost 20 years ago exactly that I went off to university this September. Um, I I was I wasn't really that applied in school. I didn't really kind of enjoy school. I didn't do very well at my A-levels. I ended up with three Ds. Unlike um, our education uh, minister for the UK, I can remember my A-level results. Um, I don't quite know why he can't um, but yeah so I didn't do very well I had three D's um, and I went to work went to work sorry I went to uh, study sociology at the University of the West of England now I, uh, I was brought up in a family with sort of left-wing traditions I guess um, my grandfathers had been coal miners um, my father and mother had worked in industries and my stepfather and stepmother industries where they were in unionized jobs but they weren't particularly um, big activists or anything like that so I was aware of these sort of movements and I was aware of uh, sociology studies the underdog so I was aware I was it wasn't really until I went to study sociology that kind of it opened my eyes to really what, where I was where I was from and what I was about I mean it's a strong working class community it still is um, based on coal mining the extraction industry which uh, really in the valley that I came from the last coal mine closed the year before I was born so I have no real memories of of it being a coal of actually being a coal mining town it has always been this town that was a coal mining town um, and then as as I grew up the industry changed uh, the area changed um, but but yeah so my kind of background was was one of what it always used to be you know so growing up and processing that and and I knew that I was never going to sort of work in a in a job which my father did. My father was a tax worked for the Indian Revenue. Sort of a mother. My stepdad was in retail. Um, my stepdad was an, an engineer or his engineer. Um, so I knew I was never going to kind of follow my parents' footsteps into a job like say my grandparents thought would have done. You know, work down the mine with their dads uh, or uncles. So sociology really broadened my mind, and I realised that you know being a working class guy, I, you know there were lots of things that I did that I didn't fully kind of always liked doing so I played rugby I quite like playing sport but it was kind of a pressure to do that I liked reading I liked um, you know I liked writing I kept a diary funnily enough I, I kept a diary since I was about 10 um, off and on over the years religiously writing it every night um, and I liked uh, just you know going away and seeing different places it wasn't as if my whole world revolved around this one town so when I went to Bristol and I, and I studied sociology at the University of West of England it sort of made me understand some of these processes of what masculinity was and what it even meant to be a man and that it was okay to like different things um, and to sort of realize that you know one size doesn't fit all but until Raywood Connell's book Masculinities which came out in 1995 which I would have read as an undergrad you know, it's like, oh, of course, it's different types of men. Of course, that makes sense. But it gave me the language to help process it. So after a few years of, of travel, I traveled for a while. I worked in supermarkets. Um, I, I sort of thought I'd better do something with my degree. So I, I trained to be a, a teacher and teach sociology A-level. And as I was kind of, you know, first year of doing that, I realized that there was a lot of work that 
other people I was teaching other people's work but I was like well I, you know, I can do some of this I don't want to just teach someone's work I, I want to go out and do contribute to this discipline and there was a huge gap at the time of uh, studies in Wales on masculinity really um, and uh, lots of these different studies you know you've got the classic uh, labouring to learning Paul Willis's work which necessarily wasn't about masculinity you had work by someone called Boshin Mackengale which is on the making of men, who had uh, other studies around that, you know, about masculinity across the world and in post-industrial communities, but nothing in South Wales. So I, I kind of thought, well, I'll have a bit of that. Um, I'm from a community very similar to, to one that were written about elsewhere, especially in other extraction uh, industries, like steel, work, steel, steel building, steel making, sorry, uh, you know, fishing and other, other sort of industries as well, which have declined. I thought, well, I can do this, and um, I was really, really fortunate to to be in a in a university which had at the time I was at Cardiff University, and they had a, a PhD funding opportunities, so I applied and um, didn't get it the first time. I applied a year later and I got it, um, so I was in a place which was near uh, the field site, as it turned out, um, and I could put into practice all this stuff that I'd read and learned. And, you know, rather selfishly looking back now, it was a way of me processing my own self and trying to understand my own idea of what it was to be a man. And you go from one community to the other, lots of scholars have written about how you kind of shift between language or shift between identities and how you take that with you in your role. Um, and that, you know, I was kind of aware that I was doing that without really, really fully knowing that I was what I was doing to kind of process the world, really. And do you, would you say there was anything in particular, like looking back now, you know, in, as you were growing up, anything in particular which did really kind of impact you in terms of learning about, you know, being a boy, being a man, did kind of influence you in that way, you know, whether that's uh, family life or being at school um, or just being your community, for example? I think looking back, back now on it, I wish I'd been kind of braver in terms of my own sense of self. So I was a bit like a sheep, to be honest. I followed <laughs> sports because everyone else did. I wore certain types of clothes because everyone else did. Um, you know, I made sure that I had a girlfriend because everyone else did. Uh, that was something that was was seen to be what you did, right? Mm-hmm. So there were people in my school who bucked the trend. I would say it was a big, uh, a big. Well, it wasn't a big, but it was a small group of people who were sort of into goth music and alternative crowds. Um, um, you know, they was they were they were sort of seen as odd. Uh, you know, and I looking back now, I wish I'd kind of been a bit more or less of a sheep and maybe stood out. But I didn't really realise that there was alternative ways of being. You know, um, in terms of sexuality, it was very much you know one size fits all, and if you deviated from that, you were seen as you know odd. Um, in terms of uh, you know the language people used around sport, around others. I mean, things have moved on slightly since I was a teenager, but it was certainly a very white place uh, in, in the South West Valley. There's always been a history of immigration. I mean, the whole place is built on immigration. Um, but at the time, it, it wasn't really... I mean, I didn't go to school with many people of colour at all. Uh, so so the, you just had this sort of one view of the world. Um, so my view of masculinity was very traditional. Um, and it was only, you know, I'm still processing at the age of 40 uh, what it means to be a man in different ways. Mm. And it's, it's really... I'm fascinated every year when I meet new students at, at Swansea, um, how their language is different, how they talk about gender. 
Um, it's a concept of, of cis man or cis woman, CIS, right? That, if it existed, it wasn't taught on my undergraduate degree. And I wasn't really fully aware of what it was until I worked in Canada uh, at the Department of Gender Studies um, in the autumn or the fall of 2016. Um, and uh, that, that, so that's a new concept. But my students are aware of these concepts. They talk about concepts like non-binary, transgender, gender fluid, which I've had to learn even as a gender scholar since 2004, say when I've, you know, when I did my undergrad dissertation. And again, those concepts might have been out there, but they weren't part of our readings. They weren't part of what we talked about in class. And these students come equipped with this language, which always gives me kind of, it always surprises me because I, you know, I still think I might have to exp unpick and explain some of these issues. But it goes to show how things can can change quite quickly. But also, I mean, we are, of a, I realise I am of a generation where I've had to learn things and it's been a, a process. Let's talk about your book, Mike, titled uh, From Labouring to Learning. It's a play on the title of a famous 1970s study by Paul Willis, Learning to Labour, which explored how working class lads get working class jobs. So tell us about your book and, and why you chose that title. I think that is one of the classics uh, which was influential in my understanding about men and masculinity. Now, Willis doesn't talk about masculinity. He doesn't really talk about it as, as in the way that we do now. But it's sort of one of the foundational texts, really, for thinking about working class men and labour and the jobs that they're likely to do uh, at a time where you could leave school on a Friday and start a job on a Monday you know, 1970s, mid-1970s. It was published in 77, but the fieldwork was done a few years before that in an industrial town. So what happens when those jobs are no longer no longer exist? So when education is deemed as the sort of saviour uh, for all these jobs, all these people that once would have gone into a workplace without any qualifications, followed their fathers and grandfathers, obviously would have done on-the-job qualifications, on-the-job training, and become a qualified engineer in mining or something. But in terms of the the actual industries, when they're no longer there, we say, well, go to school, get a qualification, stay in school till 18, uh, more and more, because the way of legislation has changed, and then you go off and start your life. So that transition to adulthood has, has, you know, has, has got longer. So from labouring to learning is really just a kind of more up-to-date terminology of what Willis was trying to say. Um, the title was an inspir inspired by a men of masculinity scholar, David Morgan, who, who we were talking about titles. And I was like, well, I did the PhD and there's some papers floating around and I was looking for my first uh, you know, permanent post. And I'm really excited about this book, but I couldn't think of a really snappy title. <laughs> So we had a chat and he said, oh, well, you know, what about From Labouring to Learning? I was like, yeah. So From Labouring to Learning, Working Class Masculinity's Education and Deindustrialization, to give it its full title, encapsulates that change. As a young person, myself, growing up in this, in, in, in this environment, you know, I questioned myself and where I was going and what I wanted to do. So many years later, when I'm a qualified teacher, I'm a sociologist, I'm doing my thing, I think, well, this is the time to go out and, and see what young men today in that, that 2008, 2009, that period of time, to see what they felt about it and their decisions they were making. The book is a two and a half year ethnography, very similar to lots of people who've written about, um, you know, boys' lives, men's lives. Um, and I followed them within their school subject 
so that they studied. And then as the years progressed, I followed them from the age of 16 up until 18. And when they started going out and about in the town and started going to pubs and started driving and different jobs, I sort of followed them really. Uh, yeah. And they introduced me to those areas of their lives. So it goes, it went beyond the school gates really. And tell us a bit more about that research process there. I mean, how do you think the young men saw you as as researcher? And and did, did the methodology raise sort of ethical issues, challenges, for you, I, I would have thought it must have done, no? Oh, no, definitely. Looking back now, I mean, I read read through the, the ethics uh, applications of students at my own university, and I'm not quite sure that it would get signed off now if someone wanted to do this. You know, going into a school with 16-year-old men, at the time I was 10 years older than someone, one of the participants was born the same day as me exactly 10 years before. So I was a 26-year-old uh, young, young person going in, hanging out with 16-year-old boys. Um uh, we're coming to the end of their uh, GCSEs, uh, year 11, which, you know, they, they, they're making the decisions about where they're going to go next. So the school gave me access, you know, you can come in and talk to them, sit in the classrooms. And the head teacher, he was brilliant. He, I call him Mr. Simpson in the book. And he just sort of gave me cap launch, really. He said, you can come into the school as, you know, when do you want to come in? I'll make sure all the teachers know you're coming in. Um, I'd had a, a full, uh, at the time it was called a CRB check, you know, I was fully ticked off by the university, I was, you know, a teacher in another, in a, another, a college in another valley, but I was in an educational institution, so I was seen as a trustworthy person, the head teacher was really accommodating, and um, I stayed for six weeks and then went back for the next two years, um, but ethically, I kind of just, at the time, I just kind of went in and sat down, I talked to them, their parents signed the consent forms to sit down and have a more formal interview. Um, you know, I didn't really think much more about it. But of course, as the years went on, you know, when they invited me to the pub and I'm like, well, do I really go? I mean, I, you know, I'm an adult, uh, you know, as they were legally, uh, of legal drinking age, that side of things wasn't an issue. It was kind of like, well, you know, how, where does the line stop between being a, a kind of researcher and bordering on sort of friendship territory because I, I think for that period I was I was I would say we were friends or mm. with some more than others. So then you're kind of like, well, if I don't go for a drink, I'm kind of you know sort of using them in a negative way. Then you know I'm kind of like, well, I'm only going to hang around you for what my purpose, mm. um, and only in the time when I'm in school or something, or when it suits me. So when they'd invite me into these other areas of their lives, I kind of went with it because I felt that that was part of the rapport building but also because they they would they did want to share stuff with me that you know I was uh, they knew I wasn't a teacher they knew I wasn't a brother or, or an adult you know, a, a parent uh, I wasn't a, a kind of somebody from their school who was older than I was just this sort of person from another world for some of them um, and some moments are really really powerful I mean I start the book with a with a uh, kind of a prologue about a, the death of one of these young men who I followed. I followed roughly around 40 young men for the period of time. Um, there were some others who come and go in the narratives, but this was a core group of young men. And sadly, one of them died uh, on his way to work one morning. He, he got killed in a car crash. Um, and that that was very kind of moving because somebody I'd spent time with was, was gone, right? And all these young men who are 18 have lost a friend. Um, and I went to the funeral and I, and I, I just kind of, I, I wrote about it after. But because I'd already finished my fieldwork, I never was never quite sure what to do with that. So I never made it into the PhD thesis, which which you know, the book became. 
But when I wrote the book, I knew I had to put that in. So I went back to this account that I'd written well for myself. And it, and it's really moving as you talk about the, the coffin of this young man moving into the mm-hmm. church. And there's, I, I haven't really been to many funerals with young people. So it was absolutely rammed. And I'm standing on the, I was standing room only, me being me, I was a bit late. Um, so I didn't get a seat. So I was standing on the side with some other young men. And it was kind of one of them things where you, you don't really forget it, I guess. So... You know, I thought I had to put that in as well. And it was quite emotional, it was quite moving because I mean, you see all these young people who just lost their friend, mm-hmm. and you would, you know, some memories just stay with you. But I didn't, obviously, didn't make any notes, you know, when I'm standing in that church. But because it was such a big part of of understanding their lives, um, it is, uh, it's, it started the book. I thought that was a great way to to kind of highlight um, loss, you know, which is what the book is about, really, because mm-hmm. the town itself is. Is declining. The industries which created the towns and valleys is gone, and it's this sort of re-emergence of, of, of industry which isn't really replacing it. Um, but of course, the young men, you know, they've they've lived up in that loss, and they don't really see it as loss because it's just what life's like. Um, but that story was just one way to kind of highlight lots of the the sort of negative, toxic side of masculinity as well. Driving a car fast, you know, racing. Um, yeah, and, and unfortunately, you know, road deaths are another part of, mm. uh, of, of of masculinity, aren't they? Yeah. You talk in the book about different categories, if you like. You talk about the Valley Boys, the Geeks, the Emos, Jimmy the Chameleon. Do you want Do you want to give us a sense of those groups and how you felt they performed masculinity in different ways? So I guess that's one of the main arguments throughout the book is that. You have one community, but actually that community is much more diverse than you might think at first sight. Right throughout the Men of Masculine Literature, I mean, our whole field is about breaking down the, the idea of what men are and that not all men are the same and that there are different ways of being a man in different situations. I mean, at the moment I'm sitting here and I'm talking to you in a, I, what I think at times is rather articulate and I wouldn't speak this way in the pub with my friends and I'd change my language if I was speaking with students because sometimes you appeal to different groups, don't you? You know, and you have to... I feel you have to adopt different uh, lexicons, different pieces of language. So masculinities as a performance was really important to me because I could see it being played out. And I was convinced that the one performance that went on from, say, what I termed the Valley Boys, so they'd be the more traditional ideas of masculinity. I was convinced that I think, actually, that's not how they are all the time. The geeky guys, the ones who are studious and, you know, in old-fashioned terms, you'd call maybe uh, the Swats or the the kind of teacher's pet type thing I was convinced that I think if I got to know these people they're not going to be the same in all walks of life and and as the book goes on um, we realise that the, the geeks do like to start going out and drinking and they even though they're they're very um, what you might term uh, modern you know in terms of their approach to to women and language and actually some of the practice they do engage in is probably drawn on older practices of masculinity uh, especially around the heavy drinking um so hanging around with people for different reasons, going to different types of clubs, um, drawing on different aspects of, of masculinity, which the first persona might not be. So throughout the book, I follow different categories of young men. Um, maybe maybe friendship groups is a better way of phrasing it than categories, because they were kind of self-selecting, really, because they hang out with different people. Um, and then you could kind of see this, what, what my, one of my favourite sociologists, Irving Goffman, calls a front stage performance. You know, so they, you know, they're acting a certain way, and then behind that, there's something else going on. 
and this is the benefit of ethnography is that for the time I was there, I had a lot. Of, I could see these, these different things going on. And then there's a young guy who, you know, we all come across these people in walks of life who just seems to be able to sort of mix with everybody, really. Uh, seems to be able to uh, friends with, you know, all different aspects of, of the school, different adults, you know, his peers, teachers, you know, everybody in life, really. That This one guy was kind of quite into it. And I called him Jimmy the Chameleon because I sort of developed this terminology, uh, the chameleonization of masculinity. Now, all these years later, I'm not quite sure... Um, it's, it rolls off the tongue but at the time when I was writing it I thought oh that's, that's kind of what's happening you know and I think other people have written about this code shifting idea um, and that you can be uh, you know, you, you've got maybe one performance in one group of people and then you change it um, and, he, and he seemed to do an awful lot of work to try and you know stick into the geeks you know in the classes he attended with them and then hang out with the other boys who were maybe a bit more traditional he was a runner he used to and he started drinking a lot and partying and he was a musician, he used to play the guitar as well, he was in different bands. So he had all this kind of different uh, ideas of self, I guess, or performances of self going on. Um, and I'm not quite sure that's maintainable for a long sense of time, maybe successfully. How do the different groups um, interrelate with each other? Or do they? So I think at the age of 16 they were quite standoffish with each other so they were you know some some of the boys would have bullied the other boys the sporty type of boys would have bullied the guys who were into reading and writing because that didn't fit the traditional persona of what men would do in a valley's community it should be about sports and drinking and being tough and brave and if you didn't live up to that idea you were seen as a bit odd um just as much as maybe they would only um Alternative, there were other alternative performances going on so young men who were into skateboarding and punk rock music metal they were also seen as a bit odd because they didn't fit the stereotype either so they didn't really relate to each other very well they sort of stayed in their own groups in the playground they, they were two different sports and different interests but then as they got older and the community the school community got smaller because of course not everyone stays on in school to do uh, further qualifications after GCSEs um they become a bit more of a tight-knit group, I think. But even though they kept themselves to themselves, for the match, they, they, were, they didn't bully each other anymore. They'd grown up a little bit. How would you characterise their relationships with, with young women? So, in the book, I outline four different groups of men, really. Um, the traditional ones, who I call the Valley Boys. So they were very traditional in outlook, so they expected to get married, they expected to have a girlfriend, they expected to kind of, you know, live in the community. Um, and, and, and sometimes they would talk about women as if they were kind of like a conquest. Um, and it was a, it was a sort of a, a macho bragging rights around how many girls you could sleep with or what you would do. Very traditional, uh, the sociological literature on, on young men uh, as you know, highlighted that for the last half century. Um, and then there was another group of young men who were, who were maybe more modern in their approach and they used more inclusive language. Um, and, and I think the point I try and make in the book is these two very different groups of young men present a very different sense of how they should interact with the young girls. Um, but behind the scenes, it was always, you could unpick that. So the young men who were maybe more inclusive in their language um, they were the young men who had, on one occasion, ended up going to a, um, a, a lap dancing club, um, which 
on the face of it doesn't seem to sort of link in with some of the language they were telling me about that how they um, you know treated women in a slightly different way to their peers because they were they were sort of they would put their peers down for the way they sort of berated women or saw women as objects. Now of course this is coming from the perspective of sixteen eighteen year old men. This isn't my perspective on it, but that was what they would, would were telling me, um, and it was interesting because obviously they tell you one thing and then sometimes act in a different manner. So you know that's the beauty again of uh, spending time with groups of, of men. There's a concept, isn't there, around um, you know this hybrid masculinity that men will say a certain thing because they realise that that's how they have to act in a certain situation. Um, and I'm not quite sure they were kind of fully doing that, but they certainly had different personas that they would, would, would sort of use, I guess. And one thing which which uh, which you kind of mentioned, which is kind of noticeable in your work, is the emphasis on locality, geography, the importance of place in in influencing the construction of masculinity. I mean, would you like to just say a bit more about that? Like, why is it important that we do take into account these kind of local factors in understanding uh, masculinity? Well, as Doreen Massey once famously said, geography matters. Because geography itself constructs people in all different ways, physically, you know, where we sit, you know, what we stand on, where we live, but also the expectations of a place construct who we are. So I did another piece of research after the Valley Boys work or the book with the young men in the valleys in Canada. I looked at how first generation uh, students and the places they come from, especially old industrial communities, they take that sense of self into university with them and how difficult that can be for some men to to adapt and to shift um, and place itself is is something that you take with you and for me it just seemed to be really important to kind of as a concept to un- try and unpick that um, and the study in Canada showed that those young men were dealing with the same issues possibly that the people in Wales were um, other studies have been conducted in Australia South Africa about how places in, you know industrial a move from industry to, to post industry is important in shaping who you are um, so I guess it kind of ties into those shifts around it, and and, and ultimately the expectations you have. And I'd lo- I know I'd love to, maybe not myself, but someone else to do a study. You know, maybe twenty years on or thirty years on from when I did it, and to see if these expectations have changed, or there's more of a, what could we call it, a more a more fluidity to being a young man from a community that's post-industrial. But what I what I found was. You know, it almost becomes more cemented the further away you are from an industrial community. Uh, the expectations and the codes of gender are still there, um, and you recreate them. And lots of the young men were going to do certain subjects because that that was close to a sort of acceptable subject, like phys- you know, physical things like sports or or certain types of um, qualifications, which maybe were 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 not totally focused on. On writing, so you know, a collection of portfolios of things. It was just kind of something which was linked to an industrial past, I guess, in some way. Mm. Um, and in twenty twenty one, would that be would that change? I mean, mm. the world has altered since I did that field work. Um, and I uh, eighteen months ago, right? You know, <laughs> again, so. Yeah, and I mean, in in the media and in politics, you know, periodically we do see people talking about this idea of there being like a crisis of masculinity, um, perhaps especially in relation to 
the kinds of young men that you were uh, talking to, like white working class uh, young men, for example. Um, I mean, do you have any uh, do you have any views on that? Perhaps in relation to your research or experiences. Um, yeah, and do you think there's any um, connections there, or do you have any thoughts as well on the influence of like online uh, kind of cultures, for example, and some harmful online uh, cultures, for example? Um, yeah, has any of that come up in your in your research? I think later, later on. I mean, at the time when I did this, uh, you know, the crisis of masculinity discourse was being talked about, but that's been talked about for a long time. I mean, mm. you know, uh, it goes back to the Boy Scouts movement. That was a movement that was created to sort of make sure men were healthier because you know we were worried about our empire. I think it was, um, and and there, Raywin Connell talks about it going back even further. But I think this situation is it's almost like a crisis within masculinity, not of masculinity. Mm. Um, so it's that idea of who are we? You know, when you take away an industry which shaped who you're supposed to be rightly or wrongly um, then you're left wondering well how do you figure that out so a little piece of, a little piece of research that I was involved in um, after um, the, the book after the book came out was a project called beyond male role models which was uh, an open university research project um, which I worked with Sandy on uh, <laughs> uh, questioning that idea of what it meant you know are all men in crisis which men you know, what does it mean? Um, and, and kind of that idea that uh, you could save men by having other men in their lives. And, you know, we unpicked that and the research is out there if anyone wants to read it. But that idea that maybe it's not just about replacing men with other men to, to help this crisis. It's about you know, positive figures in people's lives. Um, and, of course, when I did my work, the Internet was it was around. Of course it was by 2008, 9, 10. Um, but... You know, these young men really hadn't embraced social media because they were still that age where, you know, Facebook was was new, but they were 16, 17, so they hadn't really started using that and Instagram and Twitter. It was still all in its infancy and their online world was more to do with gaming. They did, there was a, another social media site they sort of used, but again, they had phones, but they, they weren't on the internet every minute because their phones didn't have the internet on it. It was, some of them did, well, most of them didn't. Um, it was still all kind of, something which was which was there but it wasn't as big a bigger part of their lives as it would be in 2021 so you know now these young men would be have the internet in their pocket they'd be probably on a social media site or three uh, in classroom they'd have it with them but they were still going home and signing up to the internet you know logging onto the internet i guess so i do think it's, it's there's been a shift and you know in some ways it might have uh, created more fluid identities you know, they can embrace different ways of being online, different access to different things. Um, you know, recently we've had this kind of idea that um, the online world is where we all are based now because of the pandemic. Um, and, you know, has that has that created different ways of interacting between, between people? Are men more likely to talk about their emotions and feelings in an online space? Because it's kind of seen as easier because you haven't got to voice it. You know, there's lots of research out there which says that you know different ways of interacting with people can you know open up thought processes that could also be negative of course couldn't it of course as we know from some of those online groupings too you know so online spaces can be toxic of course because they're not all positive you know you've got the example of uh, right-wing media you've got the example of incels involuntary celibates the incident of, of people going out and, and, and murdering other people because uh, men feel that they aren't being listened to or, or they're not being fully engaged with society. I mean, it's difficult to, to even begin to unpick this. Um, but I think the internet 
can be a place where people can um, seek support um, for all sorts of causes, negatively or positively. Um, just to shift gear, I mean, I think we're probably coming towards the end now, but uh, we, we've talked about some of the, the key academic influences on your work. So Willis, Goffman, Raymond Connell, but I can't help but ask you uh, finally about the influence of uh, Bruce Springsteen. Because hey. <laughs> I know you're a big fan, but I think, you know, what is it about him and his music that you find so compelling? Because I think it does relate to to your work and your interests as well, doesn't it? Oh, it does. I mean, so you've got this idea of Springsteen that he's this guy from New Jersey who just sings about these patriotic American songs. And you couldn't really be more wrong. Even his most famous album, Born in the USA, really those songs are really about you know the struggles of being an everyday American, a working class American. Um, and you can translate that across the globe so Springsteen myself you know it wasn't really an influence by my parents or anything lots of people get into music as their parents he was around but you know it wasn't something which I was really that that sort of into and I remember even after starting the PhD and working in a in an industry in a town you know the links to industry were there but I wasn't really linking it to Bruce at all and then I kind of went to see him live and everyone talks about their first well Springsteen fans are called tramps Okay, Tramps Like Us is part of the song. So people who are really into Springsteen um, talk about, uh, you know, the first moment, you know, going to see him. And i got to be honest, I went to a gig, it was about three and a half hours, and I knew a couple of songs, and I was like, well, okay, this is this is all right. But, you know, I didn't have this overwhelming change of life that lots of people talk about. So I went away and listened to more of his music, and I actually realised that a lot of the songs linked in to what I was observing at the time. Uh, one of his songs, The River, talks about... Uh, is a, the start of the I start the book actually I start the PhD and the book with the, with the lyrics from that song I come from down the valley with Mister when you're young they're bringing you up to do like your daddy done and I don't think that really encapsulates um, I can't encapsulate my work any better than that's that saying but I really fell in love with him when I went to Glastonbury in two thousand and nine and he performed on the pyramid stage and I think that was one of the sort of a life affirming moment really you know I saw this guy there. Uh, on the, on this this environment with all these people together, you know, singing his songs and just like a hundred thousand people together in one place as a sociologist. I mean that the first time I ever went to the festival was just like mind blowing. I was like, oh my God, it's just like yeah. you know, it's just crazy. But am I right also that he's had some mental health struggles as well, and and also you know distance relate distant relationship with his father and some of these key themes which we've been talking about actually come up in Springsteen as well as the urban masculinity stuff of course of course I mean the, the, his relationship with his father was very fraught um, and, and he didn't really have a very sort of good relationship with his father as a young man and I guess part of it was that clash between him being this kind of long-haired like kind of rock star type uh, kind of guy where his dad was a working class blue collar worker worked in factories worked in paper mills worked in driving buses uh, or transport that idea that trucks and things that his son wasn't really fulfilling what the father thought he was and he obviously wrote he writes about that in his in his autobiography about his struggles with himself and who he was as a man and who he was trying to be um, and you know going back to I'm not going to use my chameleon metaphor here, but he's trying to be two or three different things as he grows up and where he comes from. And, of course, work-class bloke, blue-collar worker, um, becomes a rock superstar. How do you how do you kind of, like, you know, process that? I know during the 80s, you couldn't move for him. you know. And he, and he talks about how he embraced that fame and it didn't really make him happy and it kind of didn't really kind of tie in with his own outlook on life. 
Thanks, Mike. It's been great to talk to you. Yeah, thank you so much, Mike. Okay, thank you very much. And thanks for having me on your show. Well, that was a really uh, fascinating conversation with Mike, wasn't it, Sandy? I mean, I was one thing I thought was really interesting about what he discussed was um, was actually how even from a young age, I, as a child, he talked about keeping a diary, which isn't as as he said, you know, isn't something which boys and men often often do, and that seems to have kind of influenced his 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 life uh, throughout his kind of career to date, I suppose, that he's actually using this quite, you know, uh, unique, uh, powerful ethnographic approach, uh, which is a lot of that is about keeping journals and things like that. Um, so I just found that fascinating thread, which has perhaps gone through Mike's life and which is interesting in relation to masculinity in a sense that actually, you know, if men did engage more in that kind of activity, like keeping a diary or a journal, you know, could that actually be a useful way of exploring things like our, our emotions more? Um, what, what did you think yeah, about it? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I, mean I, uh, I, I thought that was interesting. And also, all that he had to say about the whole research process was fascinating. You know, uh, I mean, of course, I think he did say, um, you know, he was uncertain whether the kind of research he'd done in school would be allowed now. Would you get that mm. kind of access? But, mm. but also the notion of, you know, following a, a group of young men over two years, about going mm. to the pub with them, going to clubs with them. Um, mm. How you take notes? What are the some of, some of the sort of ethical um, mm. challenges and and issues arising out of that? I, I think mm. that that's all all very fascinating, really. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think it does create a lot of ethical challenges, doesn't it? Because like on the one hand, you want to like do justice to these young men and really reflect the realities of their lives, but also perhaps sometimes you might be presented with certain challenges. Perhaps especially if you are you know inspired by feminist research about you know what do you do if you do in get, uh, encounter behaviours which are actually quite damaging or harmful or sexist like what, what do you do as a researcher in those in those moments so it's a it's a fascinating methodology yeah just picking up one of the things you said about harmful behaviors there I mean, and wondering about the differences that might arise if you were doing the same kind of re research today i mean of course mm. as he discussed you know there are quite a lot of online fora now and mm. uh one of the dilemmas in that is that some of that um access is is very useful so for example mm. men going to fora about men's health you know mm. and getting support there but mm. also as he also said you know there are um some fora which are very very um dangerous and uh mm. harmful to young men so mm. you know it feels like there's quite a lot of work that needs to be done to explore uh, how the online world is um affecting young men's attitudes behavior Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think, you know, as uh, if you're a young man and you're going online and you're, 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 for example, you're interested in things like gender and masculinity or health and well-being, you know, you can start off perfectly innocently exploring those things and perhaps quite quickly be led down some quite dark, you know, unpleasant rabbit holes, which can have an impact on the way that you, you see things. And, and we do see those kinds of ideas, I think, in, you know, influencing quite mainstream thinking about, about different kind of gendered issues, I think. Um, Yes, I agree. And I think maybe this is something that we're going to need to um, yes. talk about on the podcast in future. So yeah. hopefully we can we can do that. Definitely. And But for now, thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Now and Men. Any references we mentioned will all be in the show notes. You're welcome to email us at nowandmen at gmail.com if you'd like to ask us questions or suggest a guest. 
and we're really keen that the podcast should be listened to by as many people as possible to encourage more men to think about issues of masculinity and gender equality. So please do follow Now and Men so the latest episode drops in your podcast feed as soon as it's released. You can also leave a review and share it among your friends and colleagues and look out for our next episode coming soon. So you take care, take care of each other and speak to you again soon.